He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the, of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the throne of grace and ask his guidance and direction on our study of the word. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word that the more we study, the more we learn, the more we are amazed at the the depths of Scripture, all that is revealed. And each time we go back to familiar topics, we discover new things, learn new things. Is God the Holy Spirit enables us to put together uh, the different things that are taught and revealed in Scripture to come to a fuller understanding and appreciation for all that you have provided for us in this church age, especially through God the Holy Spirit. As we have studied, he is the one who has worked in us to regenerate us, to give us new life. He is the one who works in the world to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And he is the one who has been sent in this church age to indwell not only every believer, to take up residence inside of us, but also to indwell his church, the corporate invisible body of Christ, to make it a temple for the indwelling of our Lord in, on the earth in this way during this age. And Father, as we study the word, we recognize that so little of this has been taught or understand, and often it is just overlooked. Father, we pray that you might help us to understand these things. And as we studied last time related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the point is often missed, that this is what has uh, destroyed the tyranny of the sin nature. It hasn't wiped it out. It hasn't made us less sinful. It has just destroyed that uh, tyranny, that power the sin nature had. And after we are saved, Paul tells us that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. This is still a major problem for most believers, most of us. And so, Father, we're thankful for your grace and for forgiveness of sin that we might continue to press on even though many times we fail each day to trust in you. So, Father, remind us of your grace, your goodness, and the uh, new identity we have in Christ and the power we have because we can walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Ephesians for those who have maybe tuned out for a couple of weeks. But we have sort of hit the pause button after Ephesians 2.22. 
in order to look at this topic of the ministries, the ongoing ministries of God the Holy Spirit during this church age. Uh, This is uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is to tie together a couple of references to the Spirit in the section we just finished in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, but also to help us define our vocabulary because Paul is going to refer to several of these in the coming chapters. So it's a good focal point. Unfortunately, uh, many people today are confused about these things. I've taken a lot of time to go back and read through different systematic theologies and books that are uh, specialists on the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit today, and there are some that are very good, and there are some where you just raise your eyebrow about every other page and wonder how they connect what they just said to this passage over here or that passage over there. And it's no wonder that many Christians are just confused about the Holy Spirit. They hear so many different things, and they don't know quite what to believe. So it's important for us to to clarify and to go through these these particular uh, these particular ministries, it has often been observed that when there is a mist in the pulpit, there is a fog in the pew. And when it comes to this doctrine, there's a lot of mist in a lot of pulpits. So today we're going to continue our study, and we will just focus on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there's a few new things I'm going to bring out as we go along, so it's going to take us most of the hour. Ephesians 2.18, at the end of that paragraph, Paul says, For through him, that is Christ, in the pre- twice in the previous couple of verses he talked about through the death of Christ, through the blood of Christ, and through the cross. So through him incorporates those two terms. For through the cross, we both, both being Jew and Gentile now together in one body, by one spirit, have access to the Father. That's important to understand what is this access that we've got, and that's what we are we will learn as we go through today and coming uh, topics. Verse 22, he said, and we'll get back to this at the end, in whom you also, that is, he's addressing these Ephesian believers who are Gentiles, in whom you also, together with the Jews that have already been saved, are being built together. That's that idea, both together. We've seen them repeated over and over again through Ephesians 2, that this describes you Gentiles and we Jews. That is, we Jewish background uh, believers who were first saved, Acts 1 through 10, and then starting in chapter 10, the um, joining of the Gentiles to the church in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place. What's another word for a dwelling place? It's a tabernacle or a temple. So in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. So we really get into understanding this uh, more so today. And as I've pointed out before, it is this preposition in, 
that is uh, so important to understand. It is in this passage by means of the Spirit, but often, as I pointed out last time when we looked at the baptism by the Spirit, it is often translated by different words, and so the mistake has been that these different words have led to uh, different doctrines as they did with uh, baptism uh, by the Spirit and with the Spirit, as we saw last time, that that there are those who thought there were two different baptisms involving the Spirit, one by the Spirit and one with the Spirit, and so that led to a, a confusion when the phrase is the same in, Ephes- in uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13 as it is in Matthew 3.13, so they're not talking about two different events. Christ is still the one who performs the baptism. I'm going to review it because a lot of people sort of got lost in the weeds following me at the end last time, and so I want to make sure everybody's gets out of the weeds a little bit. So we have seen that the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world is restraining. This continues until the rapture of the church. He is restraining evil and restraining sin, and we have no idea how bad it could be. You can think about the repression that occurred in uh, Soviet Soviet Russia and the repression that even now is occurring from the Chinese communists and how how many tens if not hundreds of thousands of Christians have been murdered by the Chinese communists and it is estimated that somewhere between 30 and 50 million people were killed by Stalin in his various purges uh, during the 30s and the 40s. A lot of people think that Hitler is the real bad guy. Hitler's just a Stalin wannabe. He's just a Chinese wannabe. He, he didn't even come close to the level of murder that the Russians and the Chinese communists have, uh, have uh, enacted. And so when we think about how evil that's, those systems are, and all of the suffering that occurred under them, that is just a pale reflection of how bad the whole world would be if the Holy Spirit weren't restraining evil. And he will stop restraining evil at the rapture when the church is removed from the earth and this soon after the tribulation will begin. That is why all of those things happen and it's so horrible and so evil and there's such intense persecution of Christians and of Jews during the tribulation period. So we talked about the restraining ministry. We talked about the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he is convicting the world of three things, sin because they don't believe. John 3.18 tells us that if we do not believe in the name of Jesus, then we are already condemned. And the reason isn't because of our sin. It's because we haven't believed in Jesus. That's exactly what uh, is said in John 16. That's the sin that they're convicted of. They're, they're convicted of, of uh, righteousness because we don't have righteousness unless we trust in Christ, and God gives us the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So that's the restraining ministry, the convicting ministry. The third aspect of convicting is judgment because... Uh, 
Satan was judged at the cross. He's still alive and well on planet Earth, is how Lindsay put it in his book, but he doesn't have the um, power he had uh, before because his he's been defeated ultimately. Now, he still carries out a lot of his work, and he is very, very powerful, but he's fighting a rear guard action now, and he knows that he's ultimately been defeated. At the time of salvation, we looked at regeneration, baptism. Today, we're going to look at indwelling. We'll come back next time, talk about sealing and illumination, and then conclude with feeling, maybe not, or filling, rather, maybe not quite in that order. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. We looked at regeneration, so important that we have this chart on the left, The diagram represents the eternal realities that we receive at the instant of salvation. And at the instant of salvation, we are regenerated. We become a new creature in Christ, and we have a new identity. We are born again, the Scripture says. That's another term looking at it. And it means that we are now spiritually alive and not spiritually dead, and we have everlasting life. And it's not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. The problem, as we've seen in our study in Ephesians, is spiritual death, identified in Ephesians 4.18 as alienation from God. And Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that a little more uh, maybe uh, next time. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. And that could be translated even, or you could translate, or that is indicating that the renewing of the Holy Spirit is an explanation of what regeneration is, a further explanation. Now, last time we talked about the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. A lot of confusion about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I said last time. But when you look at the passages in scriptures, you have one set of passages that are in the Gospels and in in Acts. And those passages you have in the Gospels, John the Baptist uh, teaching, and he says it's future. And he says Christ does it for just as uh, John baptized with water. Jesus will use the Holy Spirit uh, to baptize. So we looked at this as a second aspect of what we have in Christ. It is actually what places us in Christ, according to Matthew 3.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.13. So quickly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is uniquely the work of the Holy Spirit for this present age. There's no baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. This is something distinctive and unique according to Romans 6, 3 through 6. It is based upon Christ's payment for sin, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it means that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that could never have happened in the, in the Old Testament. It is the basis for our new position in Christ and our new identity in Christ, and it did not begin until the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. So that's the birthday of the church, and that was our birthday present, was we were, and all of these ministries came at that same time, and they came together.
So second, we saw that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the unique mark of the church. It's not in any of the Old Testament periods. It's not in the tribulation, and it will be it won't be in the millennial kingdom. There are different and phenomenal ministries of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant in the millennial kingdom, but they're not today. They're similar. People confuse those, but they're not the same. Third, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is often confused with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, but these are uh, distinct ministries. And then I didn't change the number here. This should be four. Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs for every believer at the instant of salvation. It's not experience. You don't feel it. You're not going to feel better. You're not going to get the rosy glow. But we read the scripture and God tells us this is what he did. It's a legal transaction before the Supreme Court of Heaven. And 1 Corinthians 12:13 says it's by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So just to remind you, when John the Baptist says this, it gives us a great uh, parallel to understand the baptism by the Spirit. He says, I baptize with water. He's using water as the means for identifying the repenting person with the kingdom of God. That's been his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God refers to everything that was taught in the Old Testament regarding God's promises that he would establish a glorious kingdom on the earth with the Messiah as the Davidic king, the descendant of King David, on the throne in Jerusalem. So it's a physical, it's a political kingdom that will rule over the earth. And Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel. The problem is that they rejected it. Now, at the beginning of his ministry, which in Matthew 3.11 is at the point where he's going to begin his ministry, John the Baptist was the forerunner, and he is announcing this, that the Messiah is going to come, and so you have to prepare yourself spiritually, and that means you have to change your mind. You have to give up any mental idolatry. You have to give up your legalism. You have to uh, quit looking at all these other things instead of God, and you have to turn back to God and prepare yourself for the coming Messiah. That's what he meant by repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he, in the next line, he's talking about the Messiah. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He's more powerful than I am. He knew he was just a man, but the Messiah would be the God-man. He is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. So what John says is, I use, I use water to identify you with repentance for the future state of the kingdom. Jesus is going to baptize you or identify you using the Holy Spirit as the means of cleansing you and identifying you with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's it, if you understand that. So John is comparing what he does with water to what Jesus will do in the future with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. We're just focusing on the Holy Spirit aspect. Second, I pointed out that just as John used water as the means to identify the repentant person with the coming kingdom, so Jesus in the future will use the Holy Spirit to identify the new believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection and place the believer into the body of Christ and in himself. This is said again by Jesus just before he goes to heaven. Just before the ascension, he said, For John baptized you with water, using the same language, but you will be baptized. So 40 days after the crucifixion, he's still saying this event will be in the future. You will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we saw that that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So... It's by one spirit, that is, it's always by means of the spirit, and it puts us into the body of Christ so that there's no longer any ethnic distinctions, there's no longer any gender distinctions, and there's no longer any economic distinctions. You see, under the Mosaic law, only the priests could go into, into the holy, holy place. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So God is discriminating. We discriminate all the time. It's not a bad word. We make choices. That's what discrimination means. And God said only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest can go into the holy place and perform the sacrifices. Only men can come so far into the uh, temple. Only And women can't come that far. And if you're... Uh, Gentile, you can't come as far as the women, and if you're not slave or free, you can't come any further than the Gentiles. So there are these restrictions. There's a lot of reasons for those restrictions because God is teaching certain things. But now in the body of Christ, these distinctions no longer are relevant to our spiritual life. Men are still men. Women are still women. There's no other genders. They are those two, and they have distinct roles in God's plan. Both are in the image and likeness of God. All races are equal. No longer is God going to distinguish Israel as a unique people in the church age. God will restore his plan for Israel after the rapture. He'll begin to work in preparing them, and he will fulfill his promises to Israel in the millennial kingdom. But for now, being Jewish is not distinctive spiritually. This is why racism is excluded from the spiritual life. And I define racism as whenever people make a, a, a distinction, wherever they're thinking one group is superior to another based on either their ethnicity or their culture, or their background, or their gender, and that is more important than their unity in Christ, then that is prohibited from Scripture. Galatians 3, 27 and 28, we have all been baptized into Christ and have put on or clothed ourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That has to do with our spiritual relationship with the Lord. And the purpose for this is given in Romans 6, 4, so that we should walk or live in newness of life. 
So that brings us to a full understanding of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of Christ whereby at the moment of salvation, at the moment we have faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we become a new creature in Christ where the power of the sin nature is broken, but the presence of the sin nature is not removed until death or the rapture, whichever comes first. Okay. Now we go to the next. Now this has, again, a lot of confusion with it in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, One of the things I just realized that I put in the outline that I was going to cover, and I'm not going to cover it, uh, is uh, just because we don't have time and I have too much other information, is that there are, are a certain number of people who confuse indwelling with regeneration, and they are not the same thing. They are they are very different, and the and I'll get it, I'll explain it and give you just a quick basic reason for that as we go forward. Okay, I'm getting a. I don't know why this is. I get this message pop up on my screen, and there we go. Okay. We've looked at the eternal realities, temporal realities. In the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at the same time, God the Holy Spirit personally indwells each and every believer. That is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at uh, the first and the third. Indwelling of God before the church. He indwelt in the Old Testament. we got to look at that. It's very important. When the Spirit indwells us, that is great. We can learn a certain number of wonderful things about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age. But what really fills it out for us is understanding the background of that from the Old Testament. And that's so important. So we'll look at the indwelling of God in the Old Testament and then the indwelling uh, uh, in Christ. And then second, looking at differences between regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is pretty simple, so I'm just going to cover it here real quick. Regeneration is what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 tells Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He is expecting Nicodemus to trust in him as Messiah and to be born again right right then and there. But when you get to John 7.39, and I'll put that up on the board eventually, but when you get to John 7.39, Jesus ends it by saying the Spirit has not been given yet. So the giving of the Spirit is promised in the Gospel of John, but it's not yet. As he says in the passages we read earlier in John 14 and John 15, God will send the Spirit in the future. So Nicodemus could be regenerated now, born again now. He's expecting Old Testament believers to be regenerated. But indwelling is clearly something that is not then and is only for a future time, which is now in the church age. And the third thing we'll look at is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today. So first of all, what do we see God dwelling in the Old Testament? 
And to do this, if you want to track with this, what I encourage you to do is, you've done this some before, is we look at these verses, write references in the margins so that you can follow the chain that we're going to follow this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he creates man on the sixth day, and he creates the man male and female in the image of God. Now, that's just a summary statement. That's real typical in Hebrew narrative is you'll get a summary verse or a summary chapter, and then the next chapter fills in the gaps on just one part of what's in that summary in the, in the previous chapter. So that's how chapter 2 relates to chapter 1. Chapter 2 drills down on what happens on, uh, on that sixth day when God created man, and it gives us the order of, of the events. And in verse 8, we're told that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, so God has created the whole planet, and in one area of the planet, God has a location that is called Eden. As part of Eden, there is a garden. So it is the garden of Eden, but the whole of Eden is not a garden. Eden is also the dwelling place of God on the earth. And this is indicated in Genesis 3.8 when uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So it was normative for God to come uh, visit them. This is Eden itself is the dwelling place of God on the earth. And there are a few uh, pictures that are out there on the Internet you can find where artists have depicted this. Here's Adam and Eve are hard to see in the uh, in this picture, but they're here. And then you have this brilliant light that represents the glory of God and his presence in Eden. In this diagram, what I'm showing here is sort of a schematic that uh, you have the presence of God Then you have the Garden of Eden, you have the Tree of Life and the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And after the fall, you have the cherubs. I am is a plural ending in Hebrew, so they're cherubs. We don't know how many there are. There may have been thousands. We don't know how large the Garden of Eden is. But it is basically surrounded by this army of cherubs, each holding flaming swords to keep humanity from entering into the garden and accessing the tree of life. And that is where God it was was abiding. So in Genesis 6-3, skip over, this is the prelude to God's decision to flood the earth, flood the whole earth, and to judge mankind because he looked at the heart of man, and over this 2,000-year period, we studied this some last Tuesday night, over this uh, 2,000-year period, uh, God sums it up, and in verse 5 we read, uh, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil uh, continually. So God is going to bring a judgment on the earth. He's going to destroy all of the earth. He's going to destroy all but eight humans and the animals that go with them on the ark. Now here in Genesis 6-3, we see 
God make this statement. This is from the New King James. It says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And I pointed out that this word strive is not a correct translation. The word that's used there in the Hebrew is only used one time. And I was pleased this morning to notice several uh, more contemporary translations have translated this with the word remain or the word abide. And I clicked on some more recent, recently published um, Hebrew, Hebrew word study books recently published since I last studied this in detail, which was back in the late 80s. But they have all seemed to have shifted to this view that the best translation here is God says, my spirit will not abide with man forever. The point I'm making is that when God created the heavens and the earth and he creates Eden, he takes up his dwelling on the earth. He is still dwelling on the earth during the time from Adam to Noah. Still, through that 2,000 years, you have this army of cherubs guarding the Garden of Life. Nothing nothing tells us that that's been removed. And we find out that here God says he still abides. Now, there's a similar word. uh, Some people think they're related, and they could be. And it has also the idea of, of justice. It has a judicial sense. And which is what I was pointing out on Tuesday night is, is God says, I'm not going to judge man forever. My, my view is that God hasn't delegated authority for uh, judicial actions. That's why he's going to delegate authority for capital punishment after the flood. There's no authority over the family, uh, any higher than the family for 2000 years. And everything just is horrible. Evil, man is evil continually. And so God is going to flood the earth, and from that point on, he will be removed from the earth. And so his presence isn't on the earth. But he makes a promise. After after the flood, there's the Noahic covenant, the first part of chapter 9. Then there's this episode where Noah gets drunk, and after that, he is going to prophetically pronounce a uh a statement for his sons indicated by the uh, by their character and what their descents will be. Remember, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the father of all the Semites, that's Arabs as well as Jews and a no- number of other Middle Eastern groups. So those are all Semites. Then you have Japhethites, that's mostly Western European, or European, Slavic, um, non-Asian, non-African people. And then you have the Hamites, and that's the African people, and that's also uh, the Philistines, and it's also the the Asians. So there are certain general things said about each one, but what he says about Japheth, God will enlarge Japheth. And then he says, and may he that is Japheth, so that's the descendants of Japheth, that's talking about uh, those who are the descendants of the Slavic European groups, uh, they will dwell, may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And the he here is probably mistranslated as a lower case here. The subject of God enlarging Japheth uh, is God, 
And the subject here is likely also God. May he dwell, may God dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, some people think it's Japheth. I've thought it that way in the, in the past. Uh, it could go either way, uh, but it's, could, it's very likely, as I looked at the context, still be talking about God, God dwelling in the tents of Jacob. Now, the important word here is the word dwell, which is the Hebrew verb shakan, which means to dwell or to abide, to live in a tent. It, a form of that word mishkan is the word that's used for the tabernacle where God will dwell. And so this verse seems to suggest if it's God that's the subject there, that God will dwell in the tents of Shem, which would be in the, in the tabernacle. The Greek translation of Shakan is skinao. You can hear the same consonants, S-K-N and uh, S-H and a K and an N. Those are the consonants. And this is what's used in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God is going to come, and he is going to dwell in a tent in Israel, Exodus 40.34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. Now, remember Exodus. If you're reading your Bible through through the year, in the second half of Exodus, you have a number of laws given for the civil, civil laws, but you also have the ritual laws. And it's a description of the sacrifices, but also a description of just precisely how the tabernacle should be built. So you have all those chapters that describe how it should be built, and then you have parallel chapters that describe it being built, and then in the first part of chapter 40, the whole tabernacle is put together, and then we come to verse 34, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Now, I've underlined the glory of the Lord because from this point on, I want you to notice that phrase in the following verses. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, we call this the Shekinah glory. Now, the word Shekinah comes from that verb I just mentioned, Shakan. Shekinah is not used anywhere in the New Testament. It was a word that was developed in the rabbinical period after, in the period between the Old and New Testament. And it's based on that word Shekan. It means dwelling. So the Mishkan is the place where God dwelt. The Shekinah is the the glory of the of the indwelling presence of God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there's a connection between the dwelling presence of God and the glory of God. And the last verse in Exodus says, For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So you have Israel has the presence of God with it, but not in each believer. It is within the nation. And so here is a picture, an artist's picture of the of the tabernacle, and the inner building, the holy, the holy place, and then you have the uh, Shekinah uh, of God represented by the uh, pillar of fire back here in the back. This is a nighttime view with the pillar of fire over the holy of holies. 
By the time you get to the latter part, uh, after the period of the judges, and you finally have the nation become uh, become unified, and you go through the first King Saul and then the King David, Solomon will finally build a permanent place. The tabernacle is a temporary location, but it was at Shiloh for over 300 years, 350 years. So now we get to Deuteronomy 12.5, and that's the prediction. You, God says you shall seek, or Moses says you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. God is going to choose a place out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. So God is going to choose a place for his dwelling. So in the Old Testament, he dwells in the tabernacle and then the temple. But because of Israel's disobedience, God is going to leave and remove his presence from them. And God is going to uh, do that before he destroys the temple. So this pattern is found both in 586 and then after Jesus in A.D. 70. What happens is God first takes his presence out of the temple, and then the nation will be defeated militarily, Jerusalem will be sacked, and the temple will be destroyed. And so that happened uh, in 586. As a prophecy of that happening, Ezekiel has a vision of the movement of the glory of God, which is the Shekinah presence, the glory of God leaving the uh, temple. In Ezekiel 10.18, he says, Then the glory of the Lord, that's the Shekinah, he sees the Shekinah, the presence of God, departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So it's moving out of the Holy of Holies. And then in 11.23, he says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, so it's leaving the temple, and stood on the mountain that's across the Kidron Valley to the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, and then from there it departs to heaven. And so after that, the temple, the first temple, was destroyed. And God does not restore his presence to Israel during the second temple period until Jesus comes. And then we get into the New Testament and we see the indwelling of God in the incarnation of Christ. So there's this pattern all through the scriptures. John 1.14, we're told, and the word that is a title for Jesus, the Greek word is logos, and it is a title for Jesus. The word, the logos, became flesh, humanity, took on, added humanity to his deity, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Remember how I was showing the connection between the glory of God and the indwelling presence in Exodus and later in Ezekiel? Here we have it again. With Jesus, he is the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He takes on humanity. And John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the verb here is skenao, where shikan comes from shikan, but it's a Greek word. In fact, you have this word show up in a lot of different languages, even in uh, in, in Russian. The word for dwelling has, is, is skene. It's related to that. So we see this this term throughout the Middle East in different languages. 
and it is the the glories beheld. Now, for those of you who've been with me and we've studied a lot in the Gospels and the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes up and then he unveils his glory and John and Peter, uh, uh, John and James and Peter are with him and they saw his glory. They saw the unveiled glory of Jesus. But that's not what John is talking about here. You know, I've heard people preach sermons on that. That's not what happens. You have to go on and read through the context. John chapter 2, you have Jesus' first miracle, and he turns the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And at the end, John says, we saw his glory. Wait a minute. There's no flashing forth of, the, of, of, of God's character and, and the brilliance of God at the wedding of Cana. It's what Jesus did. He performed a miracle. That demonstrated who he was. See, I've I've told you many times, this phrase, the glory of God, has become also an idiom for the essence of who God is. And so when you see it, when we, it's similar to the name of somebody. So when you talk about the name of Jesus, that incorporates all that Jesus is. When you look at the glory of God, it's talking about all that Jesus is. So when John says, we beheld his glory, we saw who he was. We saw the essence of God revealed in what Jesus did and what he taught, not in some sort of brilliant effulgence. He saw that too because John was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that's not what he's talking about in the book because over and over again he talks about the glory of Jesus that's revealed and it's what he did and what he taught. So that's what they behold here. Now we go to John one fifty one. So if you have your Bibles out, let's just turn there quickly because I, I didn't want to put all the, the story and episode up here. There's not enough room on the screen for all those verses. And you come to the end of John, and there's this intriguing episode starting in verse 43 where Jesus has already called John and Andrew and uh, he finds Philip and calls Philip. He's calling his disciples, and they're all from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, from Bethsaida, a city on the coast. They're fishermen. And then Philip goes to find Nathaniel and tells Nathaniel, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's, that, see, Nazareth had the reputation that, that probably we all know there are places in every state, in every city where there's some place where the IQ doesn't get above room temperature, and it's just sort of the way we, we are. And in, in Houston, we talk about people from Pasadena, in, uh, or we talk about people from Arkansas. When I went up to Connecticut, somebody told me that you're, uh, that your IQ drops 20 points if you go to Maine. Uh, we all have places we joke about these things, and we're not trying to offend anybody, but uh, these are just jokes. Well, that's how they thought about Nazareth. Nazareth is a hick town. It only had about 150 people in it. It wasn't very big and never made an impact. And so uh, Nathaniel saying, well, who, can anything good come out of, come out of Nazareth? And so Philip says, well, come and see. And when Jesus comes to Nathanael, verse 47, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He recognized, he, he's complimenting Nathanael as a man who is studying the scriptures and wants to know the truth. 
And so Nathaniel said, well, how do you know me? You know, he's, he, he's not just accepting him right away. And Jesus says, well, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I knew you. So wait a minute, you knew I was sitting under a fig tree. So that, that's the first thing that grabs his attention. And then Nathaniel says, just on that basis, he says, Rabbi, um, I lost my, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Just because Jesus demonstrates his omniscience by knowing where he was, and then Jesus says something else to him, that's, that's what I want to focus on. He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you, do you believe? You'll see greater things than this. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, what's that all about? Well, you have to know your Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 28, there's a situation where Jacob is returning to the land. He's been out of the land where he picked up uh, his two wives and two concubines and had all the uh, sons the sons who are the heads of the different tribes. And he's finally coming back into the land, and he's met Esau already, and he goes to Shechem, and then he's sort of retracing the steps of his grandfather Abraham. And he goes from Shechem, and he goes down to this right the outskirts of this village called Luz and he camps out and it's in the same place that Abraham and Sarah Sarah had camped camped out a couple hundred years before and it is between uh Luz on the on the on the right as you're facing south and I on the east I mean on the on the east on the left and he camps there now archaeologically there was a Byzantine church put on the traditional site of this, and before that, this had been marked by the Jews as where this happened. It's a very interesting place, and I've I've been there, and it's interesting. But he he is going to have a dream there, and in this dream, he sees, and the word is sometimes translated uh, a ladder, but it has the idea of a staircase. It's a staircase to heaven. And he sees these angels going up and down on this ladder. They're ascending and descending. And at the top is the Lord. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh Elohim of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will give to your descendants. And so what happens here in the subsequent verses as Jacob is just astounded, he said, how awesome is this place? Uh, this is none other than the house of God. The Hebrew for house of God is bait, is house, El, Beit El, Bethel. It means the house of God, and that's what he names it in Genesis twenty-eight nineteen. So when Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, Jesus is saying he's, he's the new Bethel. He's the new house of God. God is dwelling in him. We go to Genesis chapter 2, I mean John chapter 2. Uh, he's going to make a further statement of this. And the first verse in, uh, after the uh, miracle of changing the water into wine, he says, we read, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, what do you think of when you think of Passover? The lamb. So he's connecting the dots to what John said about Jesus 
earlier in John 1 that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. The temple is where the dwelling place of God was, but it's not there anymore. But it's still a holy place, and you've got all these people who are profaning it with their money changing and their deal making and everything else. And so Jesus comes along and um, makes a whip out of cords, and he scourges them, and he runs them out of the temple. He's cleansing the temple at the beginning of his of his ministry, and the Jews confront him. And the word for Jews here really means the Judeans. You know, this was mistranslated centuries ago as the Jews, and that led was one of the factors that led to a lot of anti-Semitism. But technically, the word in the Greek means the Judeans. We're in Jerusalem. It's on the northern border of Judea. And the, the leaders here are all Judeans. So the Jews, the Judeans, answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? They, they, they want to go back to Deuteronomy 18 and find, have a sign. And Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this building. And it's still not finished, actually. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. What is a temple? It's a dwelling place of God. So he's indicated in by what he said to Nathaniel that he is the new Bethel. He's the new house of God. And here he is saying he's a temple. He's the dwelling place of God. And if we skip to John 4, where he's talking to, with the Samaritan woman, uh, she's uh, asking him for a drink of water uh, at the well for, to help her. And uh, Jesus says to her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus asked her for a drink. So you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's key to understand what he's going to say in John 7. So Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He's going to be the source of blessing for many others. Then we'll skip over to John seven thirty-eight and 39. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this refers to the blessing the believer will be to others in telling them the gospel and leading them to salvation. And then John says about this in verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that tells us the Holy Spirit's not given like it is in the church age prior to the church age. You have a ministry, a temporary ministry of the Spirit on the leaders of Israel. We refer to it as endowment, but it's not permanent. But here it's future, so you can't confuse it with regeneration. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to, in verse 16, I will give you another helper. Sometimes it's translated comforter. Helper is a better word that he may abide with you forever so that the Holy Spirit will be in you and this is going to be permanent. 
the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and future tense will be in you. It's never happened before. John fourteen twenty six. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. I think this is just referring to the disciples because they're going to be instrumental in recording the word of God. Uh, let's just look at John fifteen twenty seven. 27. Uh, this indwelling of the Spirit of truth will have to do with bearing witness of who Jesus is. Now, just before Jesus goes to heaven with, in Acts chapter 1, until the day he, in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the disciples whom he had chosen, he's assembled together with them, and he commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's the coming of the Comforter, which he said, you have heard from me just 40 days before. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he tells them what will happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. If we put all that together, Jesus is telling the woman at the well that if you drink living water, you're going to have eternal life. In John 7, the living water is the Holy Spirit, and it's related to being a witness. When he gets to the upper room discourse, he's telling the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses. And then here he says, wait here in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will come not many days from now, and you will be my witnesses. It's all related to being witnesses of the gospel. And this is fulfilled at the beginning of Acts 2, where the whole house is filled. They hear a rushing wind. They see flames of fire over each one. And verse 4, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We'll talk about the filling here later on. But what this is, this is the first time the Spirit comes upon, and only the disciples. It comes upon the church only the disciples as the head of the church. And then if you walk through Acts, as we've studied, what you see is that you have uh, Peter and John as the primary communicators to the Jews in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4. Uh, the other disciples are also active, but we focus on John and, John and uh, Peter. And then when you get later on uh, to the Samaritans, John and Peter come, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans, and then he goes to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and then when Peter reports it back, he said the Holy Spirit came upon them as he did on us at the beginning. This is the unity of the church. And so as we've studied before, this makes each individual a temple of God now. It goes from God in the tabernacle, God in the temple, to the body of Christ being the temple, to the church now being the temple, and each individual believer being a temple. And the word here for temple is the naos, which is that inner holy place. So um, this is said in First Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's repeated in 1 Corinthians 6.19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, 
And this is what we've been studying in Acts 2. At the, that last paragraph in 2, 19 through 22, it's talking about we are Gentiles and Jews are now together as one in the body of Christ called the household of God in verse 19. It's built on the foundation of the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone in verse 20. Verse 21, the whole building, uh, that's all the believers of all, uh, all of the church age, are growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. Believers, that's who we are. That's what makes this so important. This has never happened in history. We think of how great David was. We think of how great Joseph was. We think of how great Daniel was. But what God is saying here is we have this unique privilege that each of us individually are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit lives in our lives to be a witness, a testimony to the gospel, to the grace of God. And that corporately every believer is indwelt. The church itself is a dwelling place of God for this purpose. It goes right back to the Great Commission that we are to be baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which relates to evangelism and teaching everyone to obey everything that Jesus taught. And that is how Christians grow, through the knowledge of the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. So this ties indwelling together for us, and next time we'll come back and look at the next one, which is sealing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to study these things, reflect upon these things, to see just how marvelous your word lays these things out for us. That this, the idea that you, the eternal God, the creator of heavens and the earth, uh, that is so far beyond anything that we can think or imagine, and yet you have condescended to live amongst us, And we see that this is a historical trend that will not end with the church age, but when we get into the future kingdom, that there will not be a temple there for because you will dwell with us, Revelation says. And that this is your plan and purpose, to have us as humanity, regenerate humanity, living in the kingdom with you in our presence. And, and Father, this just floors us that we get to be part of this that we get to experience these blessings from you, for we have nothing to claim. There's nothing for us to, to bring forward and say we've done anything, for you have done it all. And especially we're thankful for our salvation. And we pray for anyone that may be listening or anyone here that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would clearly understand that this is a free gift, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, in fulfillment of of dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, prophecies and promises in the Old Testament, fulfilling them uh, specifically and in every detail so that he could go to the cross as the God-man and there pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have everlasting life simply by believing or trusting in you. So, Father, we thank you for what we've learned today. May it broaden our understanding of all that you want to do through us 
and all that you have provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.